What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to the Step Back Podcast here on Fansided. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on all of your favorite podcast apps, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or more. We're here every single Monday. We try to cover everything that happened in the NBA the previous week, and then we look ahead to the next week, the teams that are playing well, the teams that are struggling. We try to go inside the numbers a little bit, inside the strategy, and explain why things are happening, not just that they're happening. I've got Brady Hawk with me as usual. You can follow him at Brady Hawk. 305. He's also a co-host on the Five on the Floor podcast covering the Miami Heat. Today, our topics, we're going to get into a whole bunch of stuff in first steps. But then after that, we're going to deep dive on the Suns. We're playing well first in the West as we speak. The Mavericks, who, as we're talking right now, are on a four-game losing streak. So what's going on in Dallas? And then we're going to bring on Caitlin Cooper. She's terrific. I'm going to bring her on uh, about halfway through the show to talk about the Pacers, which were projected to be one of the teams fighting for Wemby this year is one of the worst teams in the league, and they've actually got off to a much better start than anticipated. But let's start here, Brady, with first steps. And I was looking at the Western Conference, and it's almost like nothing has happened. Uh, we're, we're now, I guess, about a quarter of the way into the season, and there are 11 teams that are separated by four games. Even one of the teams we're going to speak about today is struggling with Dallas Mavericks are just four games back of the one seed right now. And then you got a couple of other teams that are five and a half back of the one seeds. You're talking about 13 teams within five and a half games. And I just want to get into which teams may be able to separate themselves. So I was looking at some of the net ratings in the Western Conference, Brady, because sometimes that's a little bit of an indicator of whether a team is better or worse than they may appear with just win-loss record. And it's interesting because you have the Suns at the top at 6.9 positive net rating. The New Orleans Pelicans are second at 5.4. And then there's a big drop-off. The Jazz, the Mavericks, the Kings, not expected to be there, the Grizzlies, the Nuggets, the Warriors, and the Timberwolves, all with positive net ratings, but all between 0.1 and 1.9. And then you get to the Clippers, the Blazers, who've missed Damian Lillard of late, or maybe we jinxed them by doing an entire episode on them, uh, Thunder, Lakers, Rockets, and Spurs from there. But does anything stick out to you? I mean, are the Pelicans maybe better than we thought? Yeah, definitely, considering the fact that they haven't even been as healthy as we expected. Like, we expected this to be the time where they kind of hit certain strides. But uh, the surprises are that um, as much as we sat here and talked about teams like the Jazz or, or these other teams, like, there's a big fall off where if they go on a bit of a losing streak, which happens, like, if a team goes on a little bit of a road trip or, or something along those lines, like, they could fall all the way to this 11-12 mark that you're talking about. So, uh, that's an interesting perspective. I think the uh, we're going to get into the Suns and Mavs, and I think those are two interesting teams that you mentioned in terms of net rating in general. The fact that the Timberwolves 
are that bad, like that down on the, on the totem pole, but they're still in the mix. Like that says a lot because they have the talent there. It's just trying to figure out all the pieces. So I think that's an intriguing team to still keep an eye on that. They still can't really figure it out. They're at 500. Uh, and the net rating shows and the offensive defensive rating does shows that it's not working when they have all four guys on the floor, but they're still in the mix that if they figure it out enough, they can get back uh, at least in that play into, you know, six, four to six range. All right, let's get to number two here on first steps. And I know that ESPN will be happy about this. The Lakers, the Nets, and the Warriors, the three teams they talk about more than all of the others combined, all got off to poor starts, especially the Lakers, the Nets dealing with the Kyrie situation with Ben Simmons not being productive at all early in the season with Kevin Durant still wanting out the Lakers without LeBron for a while, um, no shooting on that roster. Although Lonnie Walker has been, I I don't know why they didn't go to him more often earlier in the season, because to me he's better than all the other guards that they've got. Uh, And then the Warriors who had struggled so much on the road, but in their last 18 games combined, the Lakers, the Nets and the Warriors are 14 and four. If I was to say to you, which of these teams can sustain success here for the longest? Is it still Golden State? I believe so. I just have more trust in them as a unit, as led by Steph Curry uh, and the guys around them, that they have enough of an identity where I feel like the Nets and Lakers don't have as much of an identity. Uh, But it's weird when you package these three teams up, because I wasn't even thinking about this beforehand, but then it just clicked clicked in my head where I'm like, you have the three guys trying to like battle this team through. You have the Stephs of the world, the LeBrons of the world, the KDs of the world. But the reason you're seeing these turnarounds is you're seeing like the revival players come in to be the factors. Anthony Davis with the Lakers. Braun goes down. Anthony Davis playing at an incredibly high level offensively and defensively. Uh, you move on to the Warriors. Klay Thompson's had a very rough start to the season. You see him picking it up, uh, being more of an offensive threat. They don't need a lot for him. They just need him to not be like a negative on the offensive end and provide some of that kind of gravity offensively from the uh, perimeter. Then you move on to the Nets. Like, we can talk about Kyrie Irving returning, but Ben Simmons, like, coming into form here and being a plus player for them in the rotation where they're able to kind of run stuff through him. They're able to push pace with him. They're able to put him in different places defensively at the five. Like, we can talk and sit here and talk about the Currys, the LeBrons, the KDs, but the revival players are what's going to push these teams forward. And whoever, and I think there's probably more trust among that grouping within AD but I still feel like the Warriors as a whole, they can figure it out just because I know we've seen what they're able to do. See, I would put the least trust in AD because I don't think he stays healthy. And so when I look at the three of them, I say, okay, Clay has taken a while to get himself back, but this should be kind of a straight line up now. If he is, if he's passed some of the injury struggles, his game has never relied on athleticism, so he doesn't need to get all of it back. The thing about the three of them, first thing, Simmons, it's, it's based on his head. It's not based on his ability. It's based on whether or not he's going to buy in, whether or not he's going to be confident, whether he's going to be comfortable, because he can fill a role that they need on that team. We've talked about it. Like They don't need him to score. They need him to do the things that you're talking about, pushing pace, defend, uh, just you know, be a big guard, essentially. Be somebody that they can play through. He doesn't have to be a play finisher, necessarily. He doesn't have to be a shooter. But the reason that I think it's most sustainable for the Warriors is because of those three guys, they, they need Clay the least, I think. I, I think they can get by without Clay uh, continuing this, and I think he's most likely to continue it, but I don't think they have to have it. I, the Lakers have to have AD. They have to, and there's going to be a three to six week injury at some point. And with Ben Simmons, you just don't know how long he's going to stay out of his own head. 
So I would say it's most sustainable with the Warriors. They also have more depth on that roster. The Nets probably have the second most depth on that roster. Although we've talked about the Warriors depth has not been what was anticipated, um, but, but they have, they have more high quality players. I think if they're all playing well at the same time. All right, let's get to number three here is we have to do something for our heat audience and the Bam out of bio breakout is happening. I, I was looking at his numbers Today, I know Jimmy Butler is out. We're going to talk a lot about this on five on the floor and that Bam hasn't typically uh, maintained this when Jimmy has been playing, that he tends to defer even if Jimmy doesn't want him to. But Bam has never scored 70 points over a two-game span before. That just happened. He just put up two of the six highest game scorers of his entire regular season career. He did them back-to-back. The the game against Washington – uh, was the second best game scorer of his career. And everybody remembers the first one. It was the game winning, the game he finished with a game winner against the Nets. When again, Jimmy was out in that one too, uh, if you recall that. So I'll ask you this now, because we'll put this out for our national audience. Bam Adebayo right now, top 15 player in the NBA? After these two games, when you look at the way he's playing like this, yes. Like I, I just feel like uh, the reason they give they talk about no ceiling is because he has no ceiling in terms of where he can land on this list because – when he's aggressive and he's pushing uh, himself to other levels offensively, there's different things they can do with him. Now, you mentioned the Jimmy Butler aspect. The thing here is, like, he has to be the number one option with or without Jimmy Butler, and that's what's going to push this Heat team over the top, and that's going to push Bam Adebayo over the top. Looking at these last two games specifically, you see him. Uh, there's nothing that he's doing. You look at his shot chart, and it's like all the shots are from the same spot. But then you go and watch the film and nothing's the same. Like pretty much like he's being used as a roller. He's being used in post splits to attack on a face up. Uh, he's doing things that are post ups down on the bottom of, uh, of the rim. You're doing uh, pushing pace and running in transition. Like there's different aspects of what he's doing. And that's the key here. They have to run sets for him. You see Tyler Hero has 20 assists and Bama 70 points over the last two games. It's not a coincidence. Those two, uh, they can do different things. And as I talked about yesterday, uh, talking about the Heat Hawks game that played out on Sunday night, they basically just ran a certain action for an entire quarter to win a game because Bam is that good as a threat and as a, as a potential scorer when he's rolling uh, that they just ran a pin down into a curl for Hero to just basically run a pick and roll, a two-on-one, and Bam just basically capitalized that entire span. So the key here is Bam being the first option consistently in the regular season. Uh, and step two, as you said, which we're going to get into a bit more, he's doing it when they're fully healthy with Jimmy Butler back and trying to preserve those type of guys like the Kyle Lowry's, as we saw him in that Hawks game, looking absolutely dead because he's the second most uh, minutes in the NBA right now. Like, that's just not a normal thing. Yeah, they did not anticipate him playing the second most minutes in the NBA uh, at this stage. But injuries to Gabe Vincent and and Victor Oladipo have required that. All right, let's get to a new segment here on the show. We're going to do this all the way through. We're going to call it the Wemby Watch. Of course, everybody's looking at Victor as the number one pick coming up this year, franchise-changing player, And there are a lot of teams that are in the mix to get him. And when we talk about the West right now with 11 teams being bunched up within four games, the Eastern Conference also, with the exception of Milwaukee and Boston, there's a sort of a mess there between three and about 10. There are teams that are going to have to make decisions here. Okay, teams that are in that kind of seven to 10 space, like in each conference. When are we going to start to try to go the other direction? And I think that's where you're going to start to see the trades happen, especially some of these contracts become vested and tradable as we get to December 15th and January 15th. So let's go through it right now. Who has the advantage among the East teams to finish last in the East? Okay. And what would they have to do? Cause I'm looking at this right now. 
The Hornets are six and 14, but they've won a couple in a row, which is unfortunate. So mm-hmm. now they're six and 14 through 20. The Magic have lost four in a row. They've, they're kind of injury ravaged at the moment, five and 15. The Pistons have lost two in a row. They're at five and 17. None of these teams are making the playoffs. Okay. It's highly unlikely that any of them make the play in. Which is the team that can get worst fastest? I honestly think it's the Hornets. And they won two in a row, and that's why it throws us off a little bit from the time that we're recording this. Uh, but I still – like, they'll, they'll sell enough tickets while they're losing because they have LaMelo Ball when he does play. But I think roster-wise, I like the Magic's team, and they play to win. Like, that team, when they play, like, they play at a certain level that I think they can steal games from guys. Pistons are in that Hornets realm where I think it's a battle. Uh, but I think I lean Hornets. Now, that's why it's an, it's an interesting topic because the East, I feel like, is, is kind of a toss-up where the West, and I'm sure you're going to get into it now, I feel like there's one team that kind of stands out from the rest among that grouping that feels like they'll be the league leader. Yeah, so let's get to it because I think before the year, we thought it might be the Thunder, and they've already accumulated all those picks, but Shea is playing too well. I, I, now, they, they've slipped back to 7 but I don't know that they can get bad enough to be worse than the Rockets or the Spurs uh, who are beneath them. The Lakers are still beneath them, by the way, too, but I, I they don't have their first round pick. So that, that's not even an option for them. So the, the Rockets and the Spurs, which is the team you're talking about? I'm talking about the Spurs because they got out to a really hot start. They have certain talent. They have Devin Vassell and Kelvin Johnson playing at a certain level. Jakob Pertl playing at a certain level. They're one and nine in their last 10 and they've lost eight in a row. Like th- if there's a direction here, uh, that's the team because the Rockets are kind of just a mess in general where they, you don't know what you're getting on a certain night just because Kevin Porter and Jalen green are either absolutely going to go off or, or they're going to be extremely turnover heavy uh, and inefficient. So you don't know what you're getting on a regular basis that they could go, they could go on a three game winning streak and then lose six in a row. We don't know. The Spurs feel like we know what they are now. Like in, and I said it before, like it feels like that's the type of team that would get it. Like if we're thinking about, a, like a player that would plug into a system as much as I feel like t- people would be like, it's not as flashy and fun. That just felt like the team all along. That's going to end up just being put in a certain position. I just wonder if that'll keep pop around. And I also wonder if that's why pop is sticking around because we've seen a lot of his assistants have gone other places, uh, whether it's Becky Hammond or some of the others, James Borrego. I don't really know what he's still there for at this point, unless it's this which is to kind of steer the ship down intentionally. We all know what happened. Pop took over, of course, uh, during the whole Robinson to Duncan transition there where they, they basically tanked an entire year. They had Dominique Wilkins, I think, at age 36 or 38 on a torn Achilles, the leading the team in minutes one year. to He was not the human highlight film anymore to, to be able to get uh, in position to take Tim Duncan. And then they had like another 15 years of every other year dominance. And they were basically the best franchise in the NBA could happen again. I just wonder, does the NBA want Wemby in San Antonio? Like I, they just, they had Tim Duncan in San Antonio. They had David Robinson in San Antonio. I feel like Detroit would be better off for the league. We've seen that they can sell Orlando. They did it with Shaq and with Penny uh, and with some others down there. Uh, and Houston is a huge mark is a bigger market than San Antonio and has a tradition of, of great, bigs uh in houston almost as much as any team in the league welcome to the playback where brady hawk breaks down two teams from around the nba one east one west one that's doing well we call that the high step and one that's not doing so well we call that the misstep 
here with Brady. We're going to get into a couple of teams. Let's talk about the Phoenix Suns first. This is our high step. James Jones, as we're speaking today, he just got uh, promoted to president of basketball operations. Uh, somebody who came through the Heat organization and other organizations uh, played with LeBron. And he was one of the guys that LeBron brought to Cleveland with him to kind of instill the culture there up, you know, up in Cleveland before they won a championship. He got the job in Phoenix, which was a job at the time that nobody really wanted. Uh, it had been a, a bad job for a long time. Ryan McDonough had it for a bit. Of course, ownership with Robert Sarver. There were always the problems there, even before a lot of it came to light. Uh, but James Jones has done a really good job. And this year, I don't know that people thought they would be back atop the East again, Brady. Uh, excuse me, atop the West at this stage, Brady, considering uh, the issues they had with Aiton in the offseason and also Chris Paul's health. And then they lose... Uh, you know, they, they, they lose their starting power forward who they just promoted Cam Johnson. How have they done it? Yeah, it's really intriguing to see because we, there's a lot of teams that have been injury heavy and they figured out ways. Uh, but it helps a lot when Devin Booker's on your roster to kind of carry the load a lot of those portions of the season. Uh, but they've had guys step up. And I thought one of the intriguing ones was Cameron Payne. The fact that I think he was averaging 18 since Chris Paul went down. Uh, you have Torrey Craig and, and a lot of their shooters uh, in this last you know, since Chris Paul went down, I think it was like Craig was shooting 40%. You have Damian Lee shooting a crazy number, Shamit shooting a crazy number. Like when you're getting these type of play styles and you're able to use Booker in these sets, and then you're able to have these spot-up shooters in the corners and you're able to spread out, run a spread offense, uh, things just look good for them. And then there's the major swing person, which is DeAndre Ayton. And the fact that uh, he's averaging 16 and 10 a game, but he just had that game the other day against the Jazz where he had 29 and 21. Uh, and they, he had back-to-back games where he played at that level. But when he's being physical and he's being utilized consistently around the rim and he's rolling and he's able to find math, mismatches and take advantage of them, they're a totally different team. But you were talking earlier about net ratings in the West and kind of that type of realm. There's a reason that this Suns team is atop that because they've been good on both ends. They're a top three offense. They're a top five defense. Uh, and the fact that you're able to consistently do that stuff when you're kind of working guys in and out of the lineup, that kind of tells you what kind of the direction you're going as a team. So uh, I've liked a lot that I've seen. I think Mikhail Bridges, uh, seeing the stuff he was able to do last year, I was looking at his shot profile. Like everything is pretty much the exactly the same, except he's like 47% on spot up threes this season, uh, which is a good kind of game changer for him. And he's another swing guy that can change things that they do uh, moving forward. So the way guys have stepped up, the Cameron Payne's of the world, the all the spot up shooters, that's kind of stood out. The other thing that jumps out from their numbers, and we're going to talk uh, next about the Mavs, and then we're going to bring on Caitlin to talk about the Pacers. The other thing that jumps out with their numbers is their turnover percentage. Uh, they turn over the ball less than any other team in the league. Um, they're playing kind of in a moderate pace. We, we saw when they came to Miami what their system is supposed to look like. They weren't completely healthy there. Uh, so what is – because then we saw it flame out in the playoffs. They, 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 you know, they had an unbelievable season last year. Game seven, they're at home. And they get completely blitzed. We know Chris Paul's history in the postseason. A lot of it not his fault, but something tends to happen that derails his teams. What do they need? Because it, it feels to me like they still need one more piece. Like So when teams start to sell off here, uh, as we've talked about, whether it's for the Wemby sweepstakes or whether it's just to reposition themselves as some of these contracts become vested, like what would you add if you're Phoenix? I think they just need diversity in what they run because we saw what they were able to do that first year where they went to the finals. They just absolutely dominated in the mid range. You saw what Chris Paul and Devin Booker could do on pull-ups throughout that entire run. Uh, but I just feel like 
that can get predictable in a way where teams can scheme out in a series what shots they want from you specifically. I go back to, uh, not that this is going to be the full thing, but but Miami played Phoenix at, down here in Miami. What they basically did to win that game was they uh, wanted them to just shoot from the middle of the floor, and they forced Cameron Payne to do a bunch of floaters and, and little push shots in the middle of the floor consistently throughout that entire second half. And that was kind of their game plan, and they ended up winning because of it. When they can kind of force you into a certain shot that they want because you're kind of the Phoenix is consistently trying to do something, that's when it can become problematic in a seven-game series. So I feel like they just need a little bit more diversity and maybe that extra piece because if you're not going to have Jake Crowder, obviously Cam Johnson will be back in the fold, but you're probably going to need that one more piece, that physical presence of some kind, that Crowder type, uh, to kind of push you over the top. But I just feel like diversity in their offense, I feel like we know what their defense will be, but offensively, can they be creative enough? All right, let's skip over the Western Conference. Let's go a few slots down, although only four games in the standings. The Dallas Mavericks, uh, as we talk here, they've lost four in a row. They did not re-sign Jalen Brunson. He goes to New York, and he's playing at a high level. Like the Nets, I mean, the Knicks have kind of scuffled, as I anticipated that they would, but he hasn't been the reason for it. He's been terrific down the stretch of games. They signed Kemba Walker who was out of the league for a reason because he can't defend at the point of attack anymore. He's somebody that everybody puts in pick and rolls, takes advantage of, and he doesn't have enough offensively now to make up for it. It's a little bit like an Isaiah Thomas type situation. And Isaiah's ended up out of the league and that's happened with Kemba. How do they, as we talk about them as sort of a misstep segment, but I feel like they could get it back together because you only need like two good weeks from Luca two incredible weeks and he'll carry everybody, but how do they complement him better than they have? Cause I, I feel like Mark Cuban has done him in a lot of ways, a disservice. I feel like the topic here is that they don't have a direction because as we speak right now, they got Christian Wood in the off season, uh, a very positive offensive force that they can do stuff with in the half court and different spots. Defensively, we know what he is at this stage, but it's also like, there's this point right now where Christian Wood is playing really well. I think in this last game, he started the second half and they were able to do some good things offensively. He had another big game, uh, but it's like there's the Jason Kidd factor where he wants to go full defense around Luka. And then there's the fact that you just went and your big acquisition was Christian Wood to try to provide a little bit more offensively. Like which direction are you trying to go in? Like, so they have been good defensively. I think, the last time I checked, and I think it was before this past game, they were second in opposing points per game. Like, they've done certain things defensively, which you would expect. Uh, the only issue I would have with them defensively is, like, they played Boston recently where there's still the aspect of, like, if you just consistently put Luka in actions, like, they're just going to tear you apart, a team like Boston, especially how good they've been offensively. Uh, they were just spamming pick and rolls at Luka and just getting bucket after bucket with Jason Tatum. So that type of stuff stands out. There's also... You know, they're 29th in assists per game. You can realize the game plan that they're running. And the last thing I'll say, they played the Raptors recently, and the, uh, that's a matchup because you have Luka Doncic going against that Raptors defense and the way that they can scheme up stuff. They were just literally the entire game putting two on the ball and blitzing him like no other. Now, you have to feel, like figure out, are you okay with going four on three on the backside if you're Dallas with that type of roster? They were figuring it out throughout that game, and then you saw in the final possession – they hit the guy in the middle of the floor and it ends up in a turnover at the end of the game. They lost because of it. So it's like, what are they going to do consistently if teams continue to do different things with two on the ball and sending doubles in that way? So I'm intrigued to see in the direction that they push towards. I think certain players on this team, like Tim Hardaway, struggling the way he has offensively has hurt them. Like there's just certain guys like falling off in this way offensively around Luka. Uh, hurts it even more to see what direction they're going to go in. 
Well, and Dorian Finney-Smith, who's been a favorite there, has struggled this year from the outside. We've talked about him as a candidate for the Heat. They've liked him a lot uh, over the years. Do they need to make a move? Because we, we talk about Phoenix, and I think they need to make a move just to fortify themselves and deepen the bench and kind of protect themselves for a potential Chris Paul injury or something else that happens in the postseason. And they still haven't moved any moved on from Jay Crowder. But do, do the Mavericks need to make a trade? It just it feels like this roster around Luca is stale at this stage. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting. So I'm interested to get your opinion on what kind of player you think they need around it. Because when I lead us lean in a certain direction, like they got Dinwiddie, who's a shot creator type in the backcourt. They have Christian Wood, who's good enough offensively in the front court. He's done certain things, but like, is it that wing that doesn't it's, really it's need a defender the ball? Sh- it's a defender shooter on the wing. I, I I think I think they need. I think they got to get past the idea that that Luca's going to spot up. I, it, it's not going to happen. He wants the ball, and his, his usage is off the charts. You can try to. They took it away from him a little bit last year with Brunson, and it worked. But I think what they need is they need a six six wing who can knock down a shot. Playing guys like Reggie Bullock at this stage around Luka Doncic, it's it's a disservice to him. Like you you need. Um, uh, you know, like if they had a Mikhail Bridges type on that team, that's the kind of player they're not going to get him, obviously, but that's the type of player that I think they need around Luca. I think at a certain point you realize when you have a star, it is all about building around the star and basically maximizing his strengths and covering up whatever minor weaknesses he has. We've talked about LeBron knowing what he needs around him and yet going out and getting the exact opposite because his kids are friends with Russell Westbrook's kids. Like that's, that's essentially where that thing went Uh, with Luca. They just got to be smarter about it. And I, I I feel like Cuban always goes a million different directions. The one time that they won the championship, that they got it right. Okay. And of course they ran it in six in 06, but when they won it in 11, they just put a team around Dirk that fit Dirk. Like it was, they had veteran guys, like guys like Jason Kidd and, and Sean Marion towards the end of their careers, Jason Terry, they knew who the star was, but everybody complimented Dirk. Okay. And you could count on, you know, a quality six to eight minutes where you could carry Dirk for a little bit during that playoff run. And that was more than the Heat stars were at that stage. I still don't think they figured it out around Luca. I don't. And so they, so then all the usage goes back to him. I think they need, they need quality because we know kid wants to try to defend. They need to get another wing. I think who can, who can defend, take some of those matchups from Lucas. He doesn't have to handle any of them and also shoot. And now it's time for the step around where we bring on an NBA writer or media member from somewhere else in the country to fill us on everything that's going on. And we mix in a little rapid fire too. All right. Our next guest uh, we're going to bring on for our, uh, what are we, what do we call this? What our step around segment, uh, you can follow her work at, uh, I'm gonna let you give the Twitter handle cause I got it wrong twice today, but Caitlin Cooper uh, does a great job covering uh, the Pacers. She even got a shout out from Tyresa Halliburton, recently so i'm going to ask her about that but we actually talked about a couple of things that may be related in some way to the pacers but we wanted to get into the pacers because I, I think they've been one of the real surprises here we 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 had them in the Wemby watch earlier in the year i don't know that they're there anymore but we already talked about deandre ayton a player that they they were interested in and that didn't end up working out that seemed to be one direction we talked about we just talked about rick carlisle's old team <laughs> and now uh now the team that he's back with which is one of his older old teams uh, but Caitlin, I'll start with you here, and we appreciate you joining us. Are you surprised they've been as competitive as they've been? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that they are probably even as surprised that they've been as competitive as they are. I mean, to listen to them on media day, 
even listen to Kevin Pritchard, the president of basketball operation for the Pacers, when he was available for media, he basically brought up that, you know, we understand that we need to think and before we were thinking in one to two year increments, now we're thinking in three and four year increments. And when we were at the trade deadline last February, we knew that there wasn't going to be a quick fix. That's the way that he termed it, that we weren't just going to get back to contention by making moves around the edges, that we had to do something dramatic. And to listen to Rick Carlisle, he too talked about, you know, the way that they were going to judge progress this season wasn't necessarily going to be about wins and losses. It was about, you know, month over month where guys getting better on the roster. They were very much setting up the fan base for the idea that this was going to be a rebuilding year, that they weren't necessarily anticipating like optimizing winning in the playoffs as much as optimizing and, and internal development of the young people that they had on the roster. So um, yeah, I'm definitely to answer your question. I personally am surprised and I'm guessing that while I do think they believe in the talent in that locker room, I'm guessing that they're surprised that they've performed to this level so far, fourth in the Eastern Conference as we currently speak. So Caitlin, do they pivot at this point? Because there, there's always a stage with the team where you're kind of like, all right, we're, we're raced to the bottom to a certain degree. You don't say it, but there's there's tanks, then there's soft tanks, right? Like there's you're, you're, you're kind of positioning. It's called positioning by a lot of teams. Okay. And you know, you're trying to get minutes for your young players and go that direction. And, and Pacers don't have a lot of veteran guys. So, so their, their young players are going to play. Uh, but then, then there's also a point where it's like, well, wait a second, maybe we can get experience for some of these guys in a playoff chase. Maybe we can even get them in a play in situation. Okay. Because I, I do think there are probably five or six teams in the East with, with better pedigrees than the Pacers that are kind of, kind of jump up here a little bit we cover one of them in Miami. Okay. And then we, we've seen some of the others, uh, you know, maybe the Nets get it together. The Sixers get it together. Um, but, but is there an advantage to that? In other words, getting, you know, if, if Tyrese Halliburton was in Sacramento, we know the last 15 years, you wouldn't make the playoffs. Is, is there an advantage for them pushing this thing forward to try to get in that where they're playing competitive games in April and maybe even May? And I think that you have to answer two questions with regard to that. I think number one is, is Miles Turner going to be willing to sign an extension? Because if he's not, that's going to dictate a lot of your decision-making. I mean, I think that at that point, I'm probably somewhat on the outside of this based on what I see in Pacer fandom a lot of the time. But my thinking is, is if the front office obviously has more information than I do, but if they've had those types of discussions and he's prepared to test free agency, I think you kind of need to get that trade done sooner rather than later because he's definitely helping them win games right now. Since he's been back in the lineup, they're 10 and four over their last 14 games. So defensively, I think that they're allowing about 109 points per 100 when he's on the court, which is a lot better than what they were doing at the beginning of the year. So that's question number one. And then question number two is they kind of need to ask how real is what they're doing right now. And that's a question that I ask myself after a lot of these games. I mean, you guys know when the Pacers played the Heat, Jimmy Butler did not play. Mm -hmm. And then in the fourth quarter, I had I had some questions in that game about, you know, why Eric Spolster went out of the zone when the Pacers were struggling as much as they were against the zone, why they didn't send a screen for Tyler Hero on that final possession and, and a couple other things. So they've actually faced quite a bit of injury luck, which, you know, the last several years, they've had a lot of bad luck themselves, but they played the Heat without Jimmy Butler. They played the Clippers yesterday. They did not win that game, but they played them without Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. They played the Orlando Magic without Paolo Bancaro, Wendell Carter Jr. twice and they played the Toronto Raptors without Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet. So when you look at a lot of those games, they they won four in a row. And um, there was a stretch where they come out after halftime, like let's use the Toronto Raptor game for an example. Like in the first half, they're really getting crushed on bully drives. They give up size. They don't have a lot of wings. So whoever has a mismatch is just taking them into the post. They had like 21 fouls by the time halftime had occurred. So after halftime, they're very aggressive and start trapping all of those bully drives and trying to decide like we can beat you in a shootout, which was a you know a wise gamble. 
But if Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet are available and Pascal is one of the best players in the league at navigating tight spaces and the way that he's been looking, making passes out of that, does that work as successfully? And there was a string of games where they did that. Like Eric Gordon lit them up for like 20 points at halftime when they were in Houston. They come out after halftime and they go switch to blitz. They hold him to five, but Kevin Porter Jr. didn't play in that game. Mm-hmm. So if you're playing this blitzing coverage and you're forcing the ball over to Kevin Porter Jr., is it as successful for you? Same thing with LaMelo Ball and Charlotte. They were very aggressive in the fourth quarter against LaMelo Ball, even hard trapping him at half court to get the ball out of his hands. And every time he got a screen, they were blitzing him and forcing the ball around. The Hornets only made one three in the fourth quarter. So mm. there's there's some of these kind of outlier things where you can ask yourself like, hey, if that team shoots the ball a little bit better or, you know, if the other players are available when they're doing these, you know, four on three defensive scheme type situations where they're being very aggressive, sending two players to the op- opponent's player that they need to be trapping at the time does it hold up as well as what it's done so far? And I don't completely know the question of that until I've seen them play these teams at more of a, you know, full strength. I'm going to let Brady jump in uh, with you on the X's and O's here in a second, but I do have one more question related to Miles Turner because there was a lot of conversation about Miles Turner and Buddy Heald uh, potentially going to the Lakers, maybe taking the Westbrook contract, taking picks. In your estimation, is that dead? Or does it just depend on whether Miles Turner is going to sign an extension? Well, very conveniently, I think that Dave McMenamin had a report come out just yesterday saying that um, certain leaders in the Lakers locker room think that they can be close to contention and would want them to move those picks. And it just what so else happens. Did Broad, what else did Broad say, Caitlin? Since <laughs> exactly. I, 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 I know Dave pretty well and I, I know how that works. Uh, yeah. So, yes. Okay. So, so you know who the certain leader was in the locker room? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think it was Kendrick Nunn, but I, yeah. I mean, that's just that's just a guess. Yeah. Um, so it just so happens the Pacers played the Clippers yesterday and are playing the Lakers tonight. And, you know, that report just happened to, to leak out. So um, I was kind of under the impression that when Miles did the interview with Woj, where the, you know, the podcast opens up asking him if they should trade two picks for him, that once this became as public as it was, it almost seems like it was less likely to happen. Mm-hmm. Because when you think about it, like both teams, whichever one blinks is going to get pegged as the team that lost leverage. I mean, because we all know what they're haggling over. It's, you know, the Pacers want them to include both the 2027 and the 2029 first. The Lakers do not want to do that. So whichever one of them gives in is going to get pegged as the loser automatically so it kind of led me to think that you know maybe some other team might swoop in there and try to outbid but i think that the pacers probably value those picks more than what you know a lot of the other teams are going to have to offer so um it seems like there still continues to be rumblings but i guess we'll wait and see brady jump in there yeah, you were talking a lot about the defense before and the different things they were throwing out but but obviously this has been a pretty fun offense to watch in, in general i was looking at some of like the numbers uh, fourth in transition frequency and their fourth in points for possession off of that. Uh, I think they were top three in three point attempts. They were the other day, they were third in, in points for possession off screens as well. Like they're just fast moving. Uh, and I think a lot of that is credit to Halliburton and his passing ability. Uh, so one, I'll ask about that specifically. Is this all happening behind Tyrese Halliburton's passing? And what do you think would be the strong two to the way that they're just being able to do this offensively in half court? Yeah, number one, when you bring up the transition, that wasn't necessarily guaranteed to me because when Tyrese came over after the trade deadline, they had like a four-game span where they were really picking up how many possessions they were getting transition. And it was evident that Tyrese is a guy that even off of makes wants to get the ball very quickly and immediately head downhill. And he also looks for hit ahead passes pretty often where he he's willing to advance the ball to his teammates with the pass rather than the dribble. And then as the season went on toward the back end, they kind of fell back into, I think they were around 21st or in the lower third 
in transition frequency. And Rick Carlisle's teams have never really been known for this, especially over the last seven or eight years coaching Luca in Dallas. Luca likes to play at a more slow, methodical pace, and they were doing pace control um, prior to the trade deadline with Malcolm Brogdon playing point as well. Then this year, it seems like in the draft that they really made, you know, between drafting Benedict Mather and they took Isaiah Jackson a year ago, Kendall Brown's not in the rotation, but they definitely wanted to upgrade the athleticism of the roster that led me to believe that organizationally they were behind this. So they push off of makes and then Buddy Heald's number one in the NBA at taking three-point attempts early in the shot clock. He really sprints to the line. I think the Pacers right now, just between Halliburton and Heald, are out, uh, have out-attempted nine NBA teams in early three-point attempts. So they look for that pretty often. And then, yeah, I mean, Halliburton himself, the last I checked, I did not check this number before I hopped on, but he, I believe, leads the NBA in passes per game as well as touches. So they really trust him to have the ball in his hands, but he does it in a way where it's very inclusive. He's not, you know, soaking up tons of usage. Sometimes you almost want him to have, you know, look for a shot a little bit more than what he naturally does. But I think it's very much a hand-in-hand partnership. I think that you can trust what Tyrese does in terms of his feel, his eye manipulation, his ability to shift tertiary defenders. But the Pacers are very smart in the types of offensive sets that they run and the positions that they're putting people in as well. For people who haven't seen the Pacers, by the way, you, you kind of described uh, a younger version of the Heat point guard here because we talk a lot about the hit-ahead passes with Lowry, the unwillingness to shoot at times. Um, but I, I was curious, if I was to say to you, uh, Matherin and Halliburton, give me their comps, like whether it's a current player or a past player. Like Who do you see when you watch them? And I know that Tyrese himself looks up to Chris Paul a lot in terms of being a pass first point guard that can really set the table in that way. And I think that some of the comparisons, I mean, that was in part why I liked the idea of that, them going after eight in the way that they did, because eight, Tyrese needs to play with a guy that's going to roll to the basket because his games build off, you know, his floater, his range and his ability, like I said, to fake lobs, fake passes and shift tertiary defenders. So if there's somebody moving toward the basket, that's going to help him. And just seeing the way that Chris Paul can unlock DeAndre and at times I thought that that would translate well and the Pacers run some similar stuff. And then like with Benedict Matherin, like in a way, when you watch him, he has athleticism that's not in the way that we traditionally think of athleticism. Like it's not just about burst. It's his ability to control his body. So like when you, when the Pacers played the heat, I don't know if you guys will remember this, but there was one possession where he had that really incredible Euro step down the lane and he gathered his dribble from outside the free throw line. And there was four heat players standing in the paint. So he just has really good body control and ability to absorb contact and still finish. He's a very creative finisher, but the types of plays that they run for him in a way, he's a more athletic buddy healed. Like they run a lot of the same off ball actions and what he can do as a shooter as they do with Buddy. It just looks a whole heck of a lot different because, you know, Matherin's curling a lot of those pin downs and getting downhill and they put him in position to get downhill catches with pretty much everything that they run for him. Whether it's Veer, it's Chicago action, they always want to have his defender in a trail situation for the most part. All right, I'll let Brady close here. You can follow Caitlin's work at C2 underscore Cooper on Twitter. And also, she's a contributing writer over at Indy Cordrow's. Uh, on SB Nation. What you got, Brady? Well, you were just going on about Benedict Mather, and I just wanted to ask you one last one on him. Just when he was coming away from the draft and entry of the season, I was just wondering what your expectation was for him versus the reality, and just how much of the expectations changed from, I guess, a couple months months ago from your perspective. 
Yeah, I think that my expectation, I did some pre-draft coverage and we did it like stock up, stock down, where we picked a thing that you know we were bullish about and we were bearish about. And the number one thing that I thought about him was that it was his fit. Because when you watched Arizona's offense, they played a lot of flow game and ran. they run a lot of NBA-like actions, similar, exact same things that Rick Carlisle runs. And I knew he was going to plug in right away and that he and Rick Carlisle would have a very good relationship in that regard. And then also just the way that he unlocks his athleticism and transition, his sense for cutting, I thought would fit very well off of Tyrese because for the most part, when you looked at Tyrese's splits last year, um, the numbers were much better when he was out there with Buddy Heald than when he was out there with just Malcolm Brogdon without Buddy Heald in terms of having somebody that could, you know, do a lot of off-ball operation and what they do. My concern, I guess, with Benedict was somewhat defensively, which has shown up to a degree. That doesn't get talked about quite as much because of what he's doing offensively. And then also sometimes his shot selection. I think if you're, if I was a, you know, consulting with a team about how to defend him, I would tell him, you know, if he's getting a handoff, switch that up the line, try to force him to be a passer. If he's coming off a stagger, do a meeting of three, get him, get the ball out of his hands as much as you can, because sometimes he's going to take shots even when he has, you know, multiple defenders around him. But yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely exceeded what my expectations were. I did not expect that he was going to be drawing contact to this degree that he would have games where, you know, he has 10 free throw attempts at halftime. The Pacers haven't had a guy who can, consistently get to the free throw line like that probably since I've been covering them. Maybe, I mean, honestly, maybe even in my lifetime of watching them, I can't remember a guy at the guard position who's been this consistently good at this age. I mean, he had a position against a possession against Utah or not Utah, Minnesota, where Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert both closed to him. And he squeezed through that space with his back to the basket and finished with his left with a reverse. Like it just his his ability. Like I said, his ability to draw contact and his, his body control I wasn't foreseeing that in his rookie season. We've seen some Pacer builds over the years. Uh, the build with uh, first with Danny Granger, but then with Paul George and Hibbert and all of them. And they put together a complete roster and then kind of flipping it. And then Oladipo for a period of time. And then Sabonis. Um, how confident are you in this build? Because we've seen them. They've struggled to get free agents. We know that, you know, typically when they, to get a good player, they've got to trade a good player, which we, we saw with Sabonis and Halliburton or Paul George for Oladipo and Sabonis before. Do you think Rick's going to stick this out? Yeah, I mean, I think it would, again, to bring up a Heat example, last year when the Pacers were playing the Heat on national TV and getting, you know, very embarrassed uh, out of the trade deadline, I remember Jared Greenberg had a sideline interview with Rick where he had said that he asked him before the game, like, if you knew in your first year that you were going to go to a team that was going to be rebuilding, is that a job that you would have taken? And Rick said no. Like, Mm -hmm. looking back in retrospect, that's not something he would have done. But he seemed somewhat rejuvenated just from the outside looking in about having these young guys and being a teacher. I mean, during media day, he kind of talked about like this, you know, I'm not concerned with my win loss record. Like, you know, and sometimes teams aren't, don't don't turn out to be what you think they're going to be, which like right now they are exceeding expectations. So I think he's kind of relished the opportunity to have some of these guys and be able to foster development in them and build those types of relationships. So um, if I had to guess, I would expect that he would. I mean, I think that this one's a little bit different too, because Tyrese is only in the second year of his rookie contract, Benedict Matherin, I mean, the third year of his rookie contract, Benedict Matherin's also, you know, a rookie himself, where in the past, you know, you flipping Paul George for Victor Oladipo, he's already in the second year. And then, you know, they just had so many injury issues. And I know that prioritizing durability was a big thing for them this summer as well, because they couldn't do that again. They couldn't have a situation where their entire starting lineups played, you know, like less than 100 minutes together because they can never be healthy at the same time. So, you know, you always cross your fingers with that. But I think that they have positioned themselves to have a longer window this time than what we've seen in the past with some of their rebuilds. Well, Caitlin, we appreciate it. She does great work. Uh, Again, follower at uh, C2 underscore Cooper on Twitter. Thanks to Brady. We'll be back next Monday. Catch all of our segments during the week. We put them up 
on the various pages on the site so that every team uh, gets a little bit of attention. I think we're four or five weeks into this, so we've covered almost half the league. Caitlin, we appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.